I want to remind us that uh, the series we're in is found in 2 Timothy. Uh, Just a quick refresher, this letter is a letter that the Apostle Paul writes to his young disciple Timothy, and Paul writes it from prison, and uh, this is almost like his last will and testament because at any moment he could head to the gallows to be put to death. And so he desperately wants to communicate with his young disciple, Timothy, and communicate to him some essentials in leading ministry. But I think, as our series says, he wants to pass on to Timothy the importance of making disciples and how critical that is and will be. And so as uh, Paul writes this letter, This morning, we're going to be in chapter three, and we'll read it here in a moment. But he's really communicating in chapter three, the first nine verses that we will look at, that there's going to be times, as there are today, when sound thinking, sound reasoning, and godly living will be seen as foolish. And so he'll go through a series of of, uh, statements reminding Timothy what to be prepared for. And I read this this week. I thought, oh, this is like Timothy hearing this and Paul saying, look, know the danger. Be prepared for the danger and then strengthen your disciples for this danger because false gospels are going to be proclaimed and taught. And so he wants Timothy to expect it. Know that it's going to happen. Be prepared and disciple people in the gospel so they were rooted and grounded and prepared to stand and understand when false things are taught and come their way. I think the real consequences of a lack of discipleship is is graphic in chapter three of Timothy, of chapter or of second Timothy, lack of maturity and commitment to genuine faith makes people vulnerable, so make disciples who are on guard and know the truth, know how to be prepared, who know how to discern when something is false. Throughout this, we've been trying to teach that a disciple is somebody who comes alongside another person to help them know and love Christ and follow Christ. It's not a command given to pastors, it's a command given to all believers. And so as we come alongside others, our own Timothys, and we've used that phrasing throughout this series intentionally, that you should have your own Paul and you should have your own Timothy. We want to help our Timothys live with the same passions and priorities of Christ. Catch that. Come alongside our Timothys as Paul is teaching to have the same passions and priorities of Christ. And so walk alongside them, help them do that, and then help them learn and live with the same character of Christ. We're to do that within the church. And pastors and leaders in churches' job is to make sure people are equipped to know how to do that. 
We don't hire pastors to do it. We hire pastors and staff to teach people how to do it. But when I look at the church, I'm afraid we might not be doing so well. Not necessarily substance, but I suspect some of the things I'll share live here as well. It was just about two years ago, Lifeway, uh, a large Christian group of the Southern Baptists, did a research with Ligonier Ministries, a reformed ministry. And they interviewed about 3,000 evangelical Christians, or at least people who called themselves evangelicals. And some of the results were pretty stunning, to be truthful with you. These are folks like you and I who claim to be followers of Christ, grounded and rooted in our faith. And, and some of the questions reveal that maybe we're not doing such a good job of making disciples. I just am going to grab three results out of a more lengthy uh, survey to prove my point. 46% of those 3,000 across the U.S. that were interviewed of proclaiming Christians believe God accepts the worship of all religions. All religions. God accepts the worship of all religions, almost half. 52% believe the good deeds they do partly contribute to them earning a place in heaven. 52%. 66% believe everyone sins a little bit but insist most people are good by nature. We're not doing so good in the disciple-making realm if that's what people believe, right? And so the, uh, the need for disciple-making is real. It's, it's important. And so Paul knows that, and as he writes to Timothy, urging and encouraging him to make sure he passes on what he taught to Timothy, who would then pass it on to other men, who would then pass it on to other men, 2 Timothy 2.2 says. The letter to Timothy continues to focus on the danger of false teachers and false gospels. Go back with me just for a minute for a refresher out of 2 Timothy chapter 1, and look how he begins this letter emphasizing some key things about the gospel. Starting in verse 8, Paul writes this, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so right off the bat in this letter, Paul wants Timothy to make sure his disciple-making is grounded in this precious gospel that he's proclaiming. <clears throat> Never forget, he writes as we begin in chapter 3, that there are going to be false teachers, false preachers, 
like the ones he mentioned in chapter 2. I mean, it's in Philetus. So the issue continues to surface as we progress through this letter, warning people not to be deceived. They'll be tempted to believe what's right in their own eyes and therefore develop a disciple-making foundation to protect the gospel. You know, when you cease to measure all things by the gospel, you open up things to consider that are false, don't you? And, and false teaching in some way will always do one or more of these. They will minimize the holiness of God. False teaching always has a way to minimize the holiness of God. And then it also either eliminates or minimizes the sinfulness of man. Because the standard of holiness is under attack. It'll always remove the wrath of God declared against sin because God's not that holy. It'll remove the guilt of man for sin. It will diminish the grace and mercy of God. And it'll always proclaim heaven for all and that man is deserving because we are good. And in some way or form, the person of Christ is distorted. So throughout this letter, Paul reminding Timothy on the assault of the gospel, wants him to know the attack waged against the gospel's coming and is already here. Friends, disciple-making is essential. Church attendance alone is not enough. Faith cannot be compartmentalized. Disciples live for Christ 24-7. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, which he writes to Timothy, who is now the pastor in Ephesus. In verses 4, 13 and 14, he writes, Be mature to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may, longer be, or we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. The warning throughout Scripture is clear. And it's with that background I want us to read 2 Timothy 3, the first nine verses. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households, capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive in a knowledge of the truth. Just as 
Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. So these men who opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as with that of those two men. Let's pray. Father, as we dig a little deeper into your word this morning, into this letter that you breathed into and out of the Apostle Paul, a warning to his readers of this letter, but a warning to us as your followers today. Help us to have hearts that are willing to hear and to understand and then apply the warnings that are given, and then to look deep within our own heart and ask ourselves, are we living as a disciple of Christ? We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Paul finishes chapter 2 with this kind of remembrance, if you will. It's this letter that has flowed all along, and I want to pause for a moment and remind you that you know, one of the hard parts about a series is we take little chunks of scriptures and look at that pretty closely under a microscope. But remember, the readers of this would have probably gathered in a small home setting and been reading about what uh, Paul was writing. They would have known him, and it so would have been uh, read all at once, considered and, and taken in. But again, if we're not careful, we can you know, dissect this so closely we forget that, and I pray that doesn't happen this morning for us. But in verse 1, Paul is saying, don't be naive. Hey, listeners, when you get this letter, don't be naive. Don't be surprised. I'm writing you now to give you a fair warning of some things that are either happening now or are coming. So he's saying, be prepared for the battles that you're going to face. Teach your disciples to be prepared for the battles you'll face, for nobody wants to get caught off guard. And then he uses the word, the last days. Understand in the last days. That's a, a phrase that is used most commonly in Scripture between the time of Christ's first appearing and time of Christ's second return. So the last days... Uh, always have been after Christ's first appearing and are now a time in which we await Christ's return. He, he, he's saying, in a sense, we're in the last days. Hebrew chapters 1 verse 2 says, in these last days God has spoken to us through his son Jesus. The last days. I think there's a, a connection here again to Paul as he highlights the gospel and really goes after the Gnosticism, and we'll talk about that a little bit more, but a couple of weeks ago I had mentioned it from the pulpit. You have to remember that uh, they did not believe Jesus physically walked the earth or was divine or was resurrected from the dead physically because all physical matter is evil. The world is evil, so... Paul, using language very carefully, has multiple connections he's trying to make here. These last days, they would have understood the last days are a time waiting for Christ's second return. And so he says, don't be surprised that false teachers and the fruit of false teaching will be rampant. It'll be observable in all kinds of ways. So remind and teach your disciples to be prepared for this. Now, now be careful that you don't become like Chicken Little 
in your faith when you read these verses, you know? The sky's falling, the sky's falling, in case you forgot. Uh, Paul's not saying that. He's saying, don't be surprised. When the gospel becomes your filter for life, you'll understand what's taking place. Here's what we don't want to miss. Don't, don't focus on the last days being some specific time where people run around looking, is this the day Christ will return? Maybe, maybe not. Lots of people have expected that. He's saying, look at how bad things are, and it must be the, the, the time in which we rely upon the gospel to be the filter to understand what is taking place. Not to be a chicken little. Focus on seeing the results of people living out their sinful natures before God. They're terrible times because people sin against God without care or concern. They're terrible times. But there's an acceptance and a, and a numbness to life that people will just have as they live out their life in opposition to God. That's why they're terrible. And notice that when he lays these things out, he's saying these things will not only affect individuals, but they affect societies. They affect societies. So prepare people. Help them understand. So the verses that follow should be used in a way to take off the mask of sin and the fruit of sin so people see it clearly. I thought of verse 26 to sub chapter 2, the transition verse between chapter 3. Paul says, Proclaim the gospel so that some may repent and avoid the snare of sin, or not be trapped by sin and its snare. The snares are things that intend to capture and kill and destroy. Don't play around with that stuff. These verses reveal the snare of false religion. The list of things are an antithesis, if you will, of the gospel. The false teachers are like a snare that entrap people by leading them to agree with a dangerous false gospel. And so he says the snare, if you will, has the appearance of godliness, even. It'll creep into churches. It'll look very appealing. It'll have appearance of religion without power to change lives. It's a hidden deceptiveness that aims to catch people. And so in verses 2 through 4, the results of the gospel are pretty well, uh, the results of a false gospel, let me say, are, are pretty well revealed here, aren't they? A false gospel leads people to love self and disregard God. In verses 2 and in verses 4, that's what we see. People will become lovers of self, not lovers of God, it says. Verses 2 and 4, there's nothing in these descriptions that are even close to being Christ-like in that uh, range of verses. Nothing that looks like someone with the passions and the priorities of Christ does it. False gospels point you to yourself, your needs, your desires, makes you think you're good versus the real gospel that reveals a heart that does not seek and worship God, that needs to repent and reveal the need they have for Christ and a Savior. 
the real gospel, transforms lives into living for God and not living for self. The real gospel not only transforms individuals, but makes a difference in societies and families, doesn't it? So part of the deception Paul is revealing is that you either love self or you love God. There's no in-between. And I read these verses, and, and we're going to look at verses 2 through 4 in just a second. I thought, well, this is really a, a helpful tool that Paul gives Timothy to pass on to others and for us. Here it is. One of the ways we learn to expose false teaching and false gospels, beliefs determine values, and values are revealed by actions. Let me say that again. Our beliefs form our values, and values are observed and lived out in people's actions. Right? So work it backwards. You want to know if somebody believes in Christ and is a real Christ follower? Look at their what? Their actions. Now, it's not saying that they're going to be perfect. None of us are perfect. But there should be some sort of trajectory or evidence in a person's life that if they're following Christ, he's their passion and their priorities. You with me? And so Paul says, well, I'll just give you the results of, of what a person's life looks like that is not in that camp with these verses. A person's belief determines their values, which is observed in their actions. Now stop for a moment with me and think about the day we live in. We're taught and led to believe that there's a disconnect between what we believe and how we act. Sunday can look different from Monday through Saturday, right? Don't you dare drag Sunday into the workplace on Monday. Has no place. A person's belief creates their values, which are observed in their actions. So the only way we change our actions and our values is to align our what? Our beliefs. And how do we do that? We do that through disciple-making. And next week, we're going to dig into the place the Word has in that. So observing the actions of people, you really determine what they believe and what are their values. A second deception of false religion is loving and living for self is normal and it has no effects on others. When I read those verses for you a moment ago, that really long set of things that are not good, right? Think back to those verses two through four. Look at them in your Bibles now if you could. Think of those. Is there anything in there like pride, arrogance, abusive, heartless, slanderous that doesn't affect other people? A deception of this false gospel is it really wouldn't hurt anyone. But it will. It will. The list in verse 2 reminds me of the text from Judges chapter 21, which says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Without the gospel, without the true gospel, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. 
loving self. Our, our sinful nature is the thing that then takes over and that becomes the real enemy of God. It alienates us from God, substitutes anything and everything that our sinful nature craves. It draws you away from God and sets up idols that you will bow to and become slaves to. And so look at the fruit of these false gospels as listed in verse 2 and following. Lovers of money, a place to find security in over God. People will covet it. They'll worship it. They'll pursue it, are selfish with it. You want more and more to acquire more and more things, thinking they will bring more and more happiness and security. Proud, arrogant, swollen with conceit. I think there's some groupings as I studied this week. In other words, having a life approach that thinks you're better than you are and deserve more than you really do. A person that easily becomes puffed up. They're self-seekers who fail to have the ability to see their sin. They think they're in control of their own destinies. And so things like, you can be anything you want to be in life sounds very appealing and normal. And the truth is we can become nothing in life unless God gifts it to us or allows in us. Abusive, heartless, slanderous, brutal, treacherous. These are depressing lists, aren't they? My goodness. Have no concern for other people. Their actions inflict pain on other people. They're going to do whatever it takes to bring about the actions they desire. And I thought of abuses, heartless, slanderous, brutal, treacherous. They're great commandment violators. Love God, love people. Unappeasable, without self-control, reckless, lovers of pleasure, never satisfied, always want more for self. They have no boundaries, and they will do and pursue whatever pleases me at the expense of anyone else. There's no restraint. And then there's a strange one, disobedient to parents. That's a kind of strange phrase to drop in this list. You know, I don't know if Paul was thinking, hey, I don't want to leave young people out of this, so I'll jump in and uh, assault them and make them feel guilty as well. I don't know. <laughs> but, but when I thought about it, you know, it probably has some application to us as well. It does, definitely would mean disrespectful to parents, ungrateful what parents have done and provided, or, or maybe even just a general disrespect for authority for all of us. And then unholy, not lovers of God. They're not set apart in their lives for God and his purposes. They give no thought to the creator and pursue his creation for their own benefits. They give no thought to breaking God's law. They have no thought or care for the gospel. Now I want you to think with me for a minute. Think with me. That list that we just talked about, does anything on that list reflect any aspect of Jesus' life? Anything in that list reflect any aspect of Jesus' life or his teaching? None. Uh, does anything look like the fruit from Jesus' gospel? No. Uh, does any of that point us and turn us back to God? None. It's false. 
and pursuing a life living for and loving self directs us away from God. Think about that list as well. Is there any peace? Is there any comfort? Is there any joy for people in that list? I I mean, that's a tiring, scary life to pursue. False gospels bring bondage, unrest, broken relationships. So think of my formula for a moment. Beliefs develop values and are seen in actions, and you begin to understand why Paul is saying, make sure you disciple people in the true gospel because the things that are listed will be attractive. They will be things that we're easily drawn to because our hearts are not hearts that naturally seek God. Verses five through eight, moving along. Without a living as a disciple, you're vulnerable to false gospels, false teachers, and false teaching. Those verses, Paul exposes the snare and deceptions of those who claim to be Christ followers. It's interesting as this list is laid out and the point Paul is trying to make is not only do these things happen outside of the church, but they happen inside the church. The the teachers that are proclaiming the Gnostic belief system, the teachers that are infiltrating the early church are teaching inside the church. And they present a false gospel that is attractive. And so Paul is very clear that they're imposters, they're hypocrites, they're going to prey on non-disciples because they're not grounded in the gospel and in God's word. You know there's a lot of false gospels and false teachers today as well, is there not? And why do we have trouble discerning and understanding what's right and what's wrong is because we have maybe not sought to be disciples, but church attenders. A dangerous place, a dangerous thing to get caught in. The days Paul writes about are days in which religion is common. Spirituality is something to be discussed, but not applied. Religion becomes this nebulous thing. You decide for yourself what's true. If it's true for you, that's okay, but nobody has the right to tell you you're wrong. No one has a right to say there's a universal truth. If they do, they're uneducated and a bigot. Paul says, there'll be those who claim to be followers of Christ, but are not. They try to deceive people with their teaching and their message. They look for people who will listen to them, those who are immature and undiscipled because they're going to begin to buy into this. Paul says, be ready. The days are coming. And so he he lays out an example in the Old Testament. He uses two names, James and Jambres. And those would be two folks from Exodus chapter 7, verses 8 through 12. Uh, Those names would have been pretty well known, although the names are not used in Exodus specifically. It's kind of tradition that these two names are the ones that were associated with the time Moses and Aaron comes before Pharaoh to confront him. And God tells uh, Moses to tell Aaron to throw down his staff and let it become a serpent. Do you remember? 
And Pharaoh tells his two sorcerers, his two magicians, to do the same thing, to throw down your staff, and they'll become serpents. And then God says, nah, I'm going to expose this, and Aaron's staff eats the other two. Paul uses this to say there's always going to be people who claim falsely to be real. He's saying false teachers, those who claim to be followers, will be exposed to be fakes just like Janus and Jambres. You and I need to be on guard, beware today. There are those who knock on our door that have a pleasant sounding message that have the appearance of religion. Those like the Jehovah's Witnesses who deny the deity of Christ. Oh, their message, if you stay and talk long enough, sounds appealing, doesn't it? If you're not discipled, you will know no different that this is false. You've got those from Islam teaching that Jesus is only a prophet, only a teacher. You've got prosperity preachers on TV and the radio who want to prey on people's desire to get rich and become lovers of money. Paul says, make disciples. Make disciples so they're warned against this. Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. Warn people. And finally, those false teachers prey on those who are weak, seeking knowledge and truth. False teachers want converts to their false gospels. False gospels have no power to transform lives. And followers of false gospels will look different than followers of Jesus. That's what Paul writes. False teachers proclaim a gospel where man's at the center and can earn his salvation. Paul wants Timothy to make disciples who can't be fooled. He says, beware. Those false teachers have depraved minds. They oppose the truth. And when you weigh them against the truth, they will be exposed. Some closing thoughts, some things for you and I to make sure we can take away from this. First, let us not forget we're vulnerable to false gospels, all of us. They're ready to catch you like a snare if you're not disciples of Jesus, if you're not prepared, if you're not rooted and grounded in the gospel, they will be appealing. When it's in churches, there's a, even today, a demand for entertainment, isn't there? Give us what we want, pastor. Make us feel good when we walk out the door. Give me my type of music. Give me my programs. Give me, give me, give me. Gimme, gimme, gimme. We must be careful. We don't become lovers of pleasure over lovers of God, even in our faith pursuit. False gospels and false teachers prey on our sinful, self-centered hearts. We're enticed to believe that living for ourselves is the right thing to do. Give us some self-help messages, Pastor. Don't confront me with the sinful heart that needs to repent. Paul wants to emphasize the distinction, third, between genuine followers of Jesus and false believers. 
There will be fruit. It will be evident. And if you lay it against God's truth and his gospel, it will be laid bare for all to see. We need not fear if we use the right tools. Four, we must be alert and aware of deception. It's real. You will be tempted. False gospels intend to separate you from the truth. Focus you on yourself, desensitize you to your sin, engage you in religion, cause you to compromise your faith. Fifth, false gospels have no ability to transform your life or others' lives because it preys on a heart that seeks what your heart wants naturally, and that's not God. And finally, good news. Verse 9 says, false gospels will be revealed. God's will and gospel will never be thwarted. We have the Holy Spirit who dwells in us as believers. He will reveal sin, empower us to live as disciples of Christ, true followers of Christ, living as disciples, finding our own Timothys, investing in them, walking closely, relationally, seeking the passions and the priorities of Christ in our life. Don't think you can go out on your own and live in a world that Paul describes. It's dangerous. And so he says, beware. Terrible times. Terrible times. Verse 1. Be aware and be ready. Verse 5. Avoid the influence of these teachings and these teachers. Verse 8, measure everything by the truth. Let's pray. Thank you this morning, oh God, for your clear and direct teaching to us. Help us to be disciples who are relationally connected, walking together, trying to be followers who have the same passions and priorities of Christ. Help us to be aware of those false gospels and those false teachings that desire to prey upon our sinful hearts that are bent not to run to you, but to run away from you. Thank you for the gospel, the true gospel of Christ that can restore broken hearts, who can restore broken relationships with you and with others who can turn our hearts away from those things listed in this passage and back to a place that has peace and rest and security that are found in you. And we pray this this morning in Christ's name. Amen.